Um, we are in continuing in Nehemiah in our series. We're going to today, we're in chapter 10. So in your booklet is page 52. If you don't have a page numbered, it's 10-1 is at the top of it. Um, and we're still in this last major section of the book where the focus is on the people of God, on Israel, and a renewal and restoration of them as a community. And so through the end of November, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what we see in Nehemiah as the foundational essential practices of a healthy, restoring community. Um, a healthy community that serves as a base of operations for us to, as we seek to be restorers in the places we live, work, study, and play. And that's, that's our focus. So far in chapters 8 and 9, we've learned about these essentials of a healthy community as a, being centered on the Word of God. That Celebration is important, and we will be doing that this week, right? So I'm telling you, celebrate. Eat a lot. That's the point of it. Get a little extra food. Make sure you've got pecan pie on the table enough that dad gets like five slices over three days, okay? Because um, that's my favorite kind of pie. But just so celebrate that an es- essential to the community was prayer. Last week we learned and th- that remembering, which again is what Thanksgiving is all about. It's remembering the good things that God has done for us. So this is a good week to be, to be in these practices. So this morning we're going to see three more practices um, of that community And before I do, before I jump into that verse, if you remember, we just left chapter 9 that was essentially a very long prayer of them going over their history as a people of God, their absolute utter failure in in following God, but in His faithfulness and continuing to pursue them, right? And they were confessing that, and if you remember, they ended that prayer in chapter 9, verse 38 with this. This is how they concluded, and in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And so we come to chapter 10, verse 1, which is just a continuation of that. So verse 1, those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and I am going to stop there. And it's not because I have something cultural to say or something important about understanding the text. Uh, I'm just not going to read all of those names this morning, okay? Um, So we're going to skip the next 27 verses, 2 to 27, and jump down to verse 28. You, tomorrow evening, while you're watching Chiefs-Eagles, you can sit down and meditate on those names during halftime, okay? Um, So, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse. I want you to circle that, a curse, because in two weeks we're going to come back to that um, with a curse and an oath. And would you circle an oath, because again in two weeks we're going to come back to that. An oath too, and underlying the rest of this sentence, it's important, to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. And now what we're going to see in the rest of this chapter are three more commitments they're going to make to God as a healthy community. Three commitments they had failed on greatly in their past, and they're like, we're going we're to re-up on these and do better at them. And there are actually three practices, I think, that are essential to us today. 2,400 years later. So three essential practices that we're going to talk about today. The first commitment that they made, the first commitment of believing community is found in verse 30, where it says simply this, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us, peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. I want you to put a box around the word marriage because that's the first commitment. 
Specifically, the first essential is a commitment to spiritual oneness in marriage. Spiritual oneness in marriage. Now, if you read this verse without a deep understanding of the Torah, the law of God, it could be easy to think this is like a, some kind of, um, they're, that they're saying it's a fo- some form of ethnocentrism. We're only going to marry people of a similar racial or ethnic background to us, and that is not at all what it is about. We know that because, and I mentioned her last week, a Moabitess who was not Hebrew named Ruth married a Hebrew named Boaz because she had given her life and believed in Yahweh, and they shared faith in him. And from them came the great King David, and eventually who descended from them was Jesus the Messiah. So this is not about, this is not about ethnic or racial purity. This is about spiritual purity, okay? That's really important. It's about spiritual purity. And it's about the commitment to only enter into the lifelong covenant of marriage with a fellow believer. That's the commitment, to only enter into the lifelong covenant of marriage with a fellow believer. And what they're doing is they're just committing to obey what God had commanded in Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6. And it's on the screen. I'd like to read it. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I can't get away from names, can I? Of some form. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your sons, your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children, they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And then he gives the rationale in verse 6. I mean, that's, that's strong enough. Or he says, for you are a people that are set apart to me. Okay, you're set apart to me. So why such a strong emphasis in the Bible on only mellow, mell, marrying a fellow believer? Mellowing. On only marrying a fellow believer. Marrying someone who has Jesus at the center of their life, just like you have him at the center of yours. Um, in working a little over 27 years with college students, I got to talk to this topic quite a lot, as you can imagine. But I've never had the chance to talk in this group about this topic. But the text asked me to do it. And so I want to go there. Um, I know there are several people from varying circumstances here this morning. I just want to say one quick thing to you, that when I talk about this, I'm, we're not, we're not going to focus on the past, okay? That's where Satan wants to take us is the past. That's not what we're talking about. What we're going to talk about is, is the future and what we're going to choose to do in the future. I mean, what, the present, what we're going to do in the future where God would have us. And I want to speak to three particular groups this morning. The first is those that are here who are single and unmarried. I'd like to speak to them from this. Second, I'd like to speak to the parents that are here who are raising children and to the grandparents who are able to speak into the lives of their grandchildren. And then I want to speak to those of us that are here who know somebody who is a fellow believer who is single and not yet married yet, and that kind of means I think I'm talking to everybody, right? And what I want to try to do is I want to try to give you a compelling reason of why this, is, it's, this makes absolute total sense, okay? Total sense. And this is how I would talk about it with, with college students before. So let's do it. When the Bible says that God is one in the Bible, it says the Lord is one. It is the Hebrew word echad, which means a oneness of community, one, a plurality in that oneness. Um, I'm going to talk about this idea more in January. We're going to do a, a series on the Trinity. But what it means is, is that our God, our one God exists in a community, specifically a community of three in one, in a triunity or in a trinity, a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a community that is known by its love within that community, a love that is self-sacrificing, self-giving, and unconditional, okay? 
Then, when the Bible speaks about marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, here's what it says about the man and wife. The two are united into what? Into one, and it's the same Hebrew word, echad. It is a community becoming this oneness, and there's a mystery to this. But here's what I want you to know. Among God's many purposes for marriage, he has more than one. But from the very beginning, I would say his primary purpose for marriage is that the husband-wife relationship would glorify him by reflecting back to him, reflecting to people outside the oneness that is in God. That's the primary purpose of marriage. And when I do premarital counseling, that's the first thing I start with, is that whole idea of oneness. And the whole way through our premarital counseling, we're talking about oneness in all of the different areas of life. So when a man and woman enter into this covenant, this bond of oneness, the intent of God is that that oneness would mirror to a watching world the oneness of God. That's really significant. And I want you to know that such a radical oneness can only come about when both of those people have their lives centered on the creator of marriage, on God, and they're seeking him and pursuing him. I want you to know this oneness is intended by God to be total and all-encompassing. It's intended by him to be oneness in every single area of life, in finances, in child-rearing, in sexuality, in um, purpose and direction, in our deepest core values and beliefs, and in our commitment to him and our faith in him as our Lord. That's how he designed it. See, marriage is like an orchestra. An orchestra is made up of four main sections, right? There's the wood, there's the winds, there's the brass, there's the strings, and there's the percussion. And within each of those four, there are subsections. So in the brass, there's like trumpets and French horns. And in order for, their, for the sound of the orchestra to be in harmony, every section and every subsection must be in harmony. If just one section, let's say the trumpets are in disharmony with each other, that sound will get in the whole sound and the whole sound will be disharmonious. Does that make sense? So you have to have harmony in every section, in every subsection, or there will lack harmony. And likewise, it's true of marriage that if you lack harmony in just one area of your marriage relationship, there will be disharmony in the whole thing. You can't compartmentalize disharmony, okay? It spreads into everything. Um, in other words, if you lack oneness in your marriage, in just one area of your marriage, it will affect your whole marriage. It'll affect your whole marriage. And I want you to know if you lack oneness in your marriage, and people that have been married well know this, that is a recipe for a marriage that struggles. It's a recipe for a marriage that struggles. That's why somebody has said that a healthy marriage, of the five essential practices or components of it, one of them is unity. That a healthy marriage occurs when the man and wife are on one team in all things, in all things. As Ginger Rogers said, some of us who are older remember Ginger Rogers, or at least we've heard of her. When two people love each other, they don't look at each other, they look in the same direction. And Amos 3.3 says essentially the same thing. Can two people walk hand in hand if they aren't going to the same place? And tell me, what's the answer to that? No, you can't. Two oxen that are yoked together but are plowing, moving in opposite directions will not plow straight furrows and will only frustrate the farmer. You know, this oneness principle, it is especially important and crucial, I think, at the very deepest level of who we are with our core values and core beliefs. That's where this is most important. 
And even companies know that. Even companies know this. They know that in hiring employees, there must be full congruence on the level of core values. So a company, even if they find somebody who applies who has great skills and great competency, if they do not agree with the company's core values, they will not hire them because that's a recipe for for disaster, right? Let me give you an example. Apple has two of its core values, simplicity and beauty. If they were to interview somebody, can you imagine somebody meeting specifically with Steve Jobs and he's asking the questions and he says, what are most important to you and your job? And the guy said, I love making things that are super complex and hard to operate and that are ugly. Do you think Steve Jobs is going to hire them? No, because you need oneness, even at a company level. And that is why in the Bible, God tells his people, those who have centered their lives around them, to only marry people who have also centered their lives around Jesus. We've seen it in Nehemiah. We saw it in Deuteronomy. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 15, Paul says it again in the New Testament where he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship can light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? In 1 Corinthians 7, 39, Paul says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. Must belong to the Lord. And then this really profound text in Malachi chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Did not one Echad, God, oneness of community? Did not one God create us? Has not the Lord made husband and wife one Echad? In flesh and spirit they are His, so guard your spirit. This oneness in marriage is extremely important to God. Um, And to me, this principle of oneness, it is central in understanding the concept of marriage. Again, it's the first thing I start with when I talk to anybody about this. So if you don't have oneness in your marriage, when you get married, if there's not this oneness, especially at the deepest level of your core beliefs and core values, then disharmony will spread and will affect every part. It will affect every part. So that's why having a marriage that's built around God is so crucial, a commitment to Him and faith in Him. And that's why in Psalm 127, 1, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. And that's why the people of Jerusalem make this commitment here in verse 30 of Nehemiah 10. I could say more about this, um, but I'm not. If you wanna, somebody wants to talk to me more about it, have coffee, I would love to do that. Um, to all of you who are here who are unmarried, Um, and who follow Jesus. Let me just say a couple of things. Number one, don't marry a person who does not also follow Jesus. And if I were to back up, even more importantly, don't date a person who doesn't follow Jesus. Because if if you never date a person that follows Jesus, you will never marry a person who doesn't follow Jesus. I hope I'm not getting my Jesus following things all mixed up in my words. Does that make sense? Right? If I never date a person who doesn't follow Jesus and love him, then I'm never going to marry a person who doesn't love and follow him. Um, early in our ministry with internationals, there was a student here from, named, from Taiwan named James Ho, early 90s. And he, he had a strong commitment to this. In fact, he had a saying when he came here that I loved. It was how he viewed marriage in general and dating. And this is what he said. He said, no Christian, no consideration. That was just his motto because he knew how important this oneness was. So, if you're unmarried here, if you're single, unmarried, just trust me on this. It's much easier to never start a relationship you shouldn't be in than it is to get out of one you shouldn't be in, right? It's a lot easier to never start than it is to start and to feel like you have to get out. 
So, And if you're here and you're single and follow Jesus, the most important piece of advice I could give you is this. You run as hard after Jesus as you can and look to the side and see who's beside you. That's the kind of person that you want to marry. That's the kind of person you want to marry. Okay, enough said. Second commitment is found in verse 31. Verse 31 says, When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy food from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. I want you to put a box around the two occurrences of the word Sabbath in verse 31. They're in the second line. One's on the left-hand side. One's kind of towards the middle. Put a box around the word Sabbath. And then at the end of the second line, put a box around every seventh year because that's talking about a Sabbath year. And I'm not going to talk about that. Um, that's kind of a different topic. I want to talk about Sabbath day. And then if you will flip to the next page on, in verse 33, you will see in the fourth line down, little left of center, the Sabbaths. Put a box around that one too, the Sabbaths. The Sabbaths. So the second commitment they were making that's essential to a healthy body is the faithfulness in keeping, in Sabbath keeping. The faithfulness in Sabbath keeping. Um, this is not something we hear about a lot, though it is, there is more being written and said about this in our culture, but still I think many Western Christians, from all I've read, this is not widely practiced, and we won't go into all the reasons. But I want you to know that we are told this command is given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and I'd like to read this. It's on the screen. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested, it's Hebrew Shavat, okay, he Shavated on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. That word Shavat in Hebrew simply means to stop to cease, to pause, to rest, which is something we are not good at in our culture, are we? We're not good at this. Everything in our culture is geared towards production and consumption, right? Everything in our culture. It's hurry more, do more, produce more, have more, get more. That's the message we're getting in our culture all the time. And it's not healthy, and it's probably a part of the reason our culture is struggling so much with exhaustion and depression and anxiety. Not the only cause, but I'm sure it's one of them. Because the reality is, is the way God designed us is we are human beings. We are not human doings or human havings. Okay? And what we learn in the Bible is when God created the universe, he built a rhythm into the universe of six days of work, one day of rest. That's the rhythm he built into it. In fact, in Exodus 23.10, here's what Moses says about it. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household, and I, I need to add a quick thing, if you remember, that is almost always in their culture an indentured servant, so it would mean somebody born to an indentured servant who is in your house, okay? And the alien as well, that they may be refreshed. So the purpose of Sabbath is that we would rest and be refreshed. That's God's end game with it. 
but it's also designed as a data focus on him and on my relationship with him to worship him. And that's why in Exodus 20.10, which we just read, it says the seventh day is a Sabbath. Could you say these next five words with me? A Sabbath to the Lord your God. To the Lord your God. I was not aware of the importance for Sabbath for the first 15 years that I walked with Jesus. I never heard anybody talk about it, hadn't read anything about it. But since then, I've learned how significant it is, and it is my desire and my attempt to try to put it into practice, though I have to admit, I do not always do this well, do this well. There is always something in every text we read that God's like, to me, right? (laughs) Every week, trust me. Um, because I am a doer by nature. That's what I'm like. It's hard for me to slow down. It is really hard for me to leave something unfinished and undone. It's really hard. But I know and I deeply value this, and I work at trying to get back into it when I've gotten out of the habit. So what do you do on your Sabbath? John Mark Comer has been helpful. He's given four words that I find helpful. He says, you stop, you rest, you delight, and you worship. First, you pick a day to stop. Um, And with the help of God, you hold on to it, stopping your vocational work on that day. Um, For me, my Sabbath is not Sunday. Trust me. It is a work day. In fact, it's my most tiring work day. So I Sabbath on Friday. You have to look at your own rhythm of your life and determine what's the best day for you to do that stopping, that Sabbathing. So we stop, we rest, we just chill. Uh, For doers, that's not easy to do, right? We chill. Um, we stop doing our vocational work on that day. And I want to say something here about rest. I know Jordan, I found out yesterday, talked with the youth about this a few weeks ago. That's really important. Rest does not equal leisure. Okay? Our culture has replaced the idea of biblical rest with leisure. And in our culture, our culture's idea of rest is binging on Netflix all day long, right? And if you've done that, you know kind of how you feel afterwards. You really don't feel enlivened. You don't feel like you've been recreated and restored. Sometimes you feel kind of like, uh, right? Or am I the only one like that? I don't, you know, or you surf on the internet for hours and hours and afterwards you're like, I just feel like I poured my life down a hole kind of, right? And it's really not restful to the soul. A friend of mine down in Texas gave me some really profound advice about Sabbath rest. He says, if you work with your hands, you need to Sabbath with your mind. And if you work with your mind, you need to Sabbath with your hands. And so, um, for someone like me, working with my hands, working outside, is really restful and restorative, as long as it does not involve raking leaves and pulling weeds, okay? Those things are not restful. They are anti-Sabbath, in my opinion. And I should have checked the weather to know it was going to rain today regarding leaves. Anyways, can I hear an amen to these things are not good Sabbath practices? (laughs) Okay, delight is the third one. Sabbath is supposed to be, it's supposed to be life-giving. I'll go back to that picture. It's supposed to be life-giving. According to Isaiah 58, 13 to 14, God intends that Sabbath be married to joy and delight. Really clear, that's his intent. So we should enjoy and celebrate things on our Sabbath. And we just talked about that two weeks ago, the importance of celebration, right? We need to celebrate. As John Mark Homer says, curate joy on that day. So engage in a hobby that you love. Go outside into nature. Take, go take a hike in the, in the prairie preserve and go see the bison. That's one of my favorite ones to do on a Sabbath. Take a walk. Jump in some leaves. Do Bluey's dance mode with your grandchildren. Just don't do it in public, okay? 
or where your son-in-law can video you unbeknownst to you. Um, thankfully, nothing's made it onto social media. And do Sabbathing, the delight in community. Um, they, for thousands of years, the Jewish people, it's not just you just do it alone, but you invite, it's with family, and you invite friends into it, and you have meals together, you play games together, you do it to other, with others. And then finally, don't forget the most important thing, which was that last one, which is worship, to worship. To take that day to, to just give God more attention, to recenter upon Him. You know, pray a little more, talk to Him more about the things in my heart, my life, spend more time in the Word, maybe listen to some worship music that I love, sing along to it if I'm alone. Um, and here's why this last one is so important, this worship, why it's so vital. Because the world and the devil, because the people who are around me, even my false sinful self, I'm content, continually telling myself a false narrative about who I am, about where I'm going or should be going, and about my value. I'm constantly getting false narratives on that. And so Sabbath is important because in the words of John Kessler, in Sabbath, my life is restoried. I'm not just restored, but I'm restoried. So in Sabbath, I'm reconnecting with God, remembering Him and His large story that He is on and that I'm a part of that. And when I restory myself in Sabbath, it helps me to recenter on Him and to remember I am not what I do, I am not what I have. And I am not what people say or think about me. And isn't it easy to live into that, those false realities? And it helps recenter me. It restores me. Um, there's other benefits. I'm not going to jump into those. Um, there's a lot of good books on this topic these days. The one to me that is most profound and practical at the same time is Justin Whitmall Early's book. I've recommended this before. It's a deeply profound book. He has a single chapter on Sabbath, and it's worth the price of the book just for that. And it's, he does a great job of explaining it and of talking about how to put it into practice in your daily life or your weekly life. So, okay. Third and final commitment we see in Isaiah chapter 10 is in verses 32 to 39. So would you read with me there? We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give. I want you to put a box around that, okay? To give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread sat out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths at the new moon feast and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. I mean, you can gather they did a lot of offerings back then, right? That were commanded in the Old Testament. We're not going to get into those. Verse 34, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. We also assume the responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God to the priest ministering there. Can I say something briefly about bringing the firstborn son? In the Torah, it's really clear that God is the owner of everything, and a lot of the giving and offering is a recognition of that, and so he commanded that when you have your first son that you took him to the temple that kind of acknowledgement that he actually belongs to the Lord, and as a parent, I'm just a steward of that child. And then you would pay five shekels, and you would redeem them back, so you would have your son, but that was just a way of you acknowledging that God was the ultimate Lord and owner of that child, okay? So back on to verse 37. 
Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God to the priest the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. We will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it's the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. This last section is the most lengthy um, section, and it's about giving. We just saw it. We put a box around the word give in verse 32, and that really is their final commitment. It is that commitment to generosity and giving. Um, The amount of space given to this one and the number of words that are repeated that relate to giving tell me this is really significant to God. Some word related to giving is repeated 25 times in these seven verses. The word give one time, collect one time, contributions two times, first or firstborn three times, tithe or tenth five times, Offerings six times, bring or bringing seven times, okay? This is significant. In particular, they're told to give to the house of our God, mentioned eight times in this chapter. For the temple was the central part of their worship and of the Jewish community. So that's why he emphasizes that. That's why those last nine words of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God, underline those last nine words. That's important. Now, after Jesus, we know that the entity that he created, that is the center of his work and his mission, that is his plan A, as some people have said, is his church. Because in Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that is why we are commanded in Scripture to give to the support of the local church. So I want to talk about this topic for a couple of minutes, and what I want to do is I want to hone in on two of the words that occur in these verses. They're repeated here in verse, these nine verses. So the first one is the word tithe, a form of which, as I already said, occurs five times. Can we circle them? The word occurs twice in verse 37. Twice in verse 37, towards the right-hand side. We will bring a tithe of our crops to Levites, for it's Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns. So circle both of those. The next three all occur in verse 38 where you'll see at the end, um, you'll see the word tithes twice in that verse, the second line of that verse, towards the middle, on the, and, and then the next line down on the left-hand side, you see tithes. But I also want you to circle on the right, it says a tenth, a tenth, because that's what a tithe is. A tithe is a giving of the tenth of my income. Um, for thousands of years, God's people have practiced giving to God in the form of a tithe as the baseline of their giving for thousands of years. And I've talked about that before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on tithing, okay? Um, But let me say one final thing about it. There's a lot of research that's done on how good we American evangelicals are at our giving. And the latest research from last year found that of every eight Christian unit or individual in the church, only one of them tithes. And it also has found the average evangelical Christian gives 2.4% of their income. That's the average. So we are not very good at obeying this command to tithe. But I want to focus more on the second word, 
and it's the word first. And it occurs three times in this chapter. And I want to circle these, if you don't mind. So verse 33 um, talks about, we assume the responsibility for bringing to the house the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops. Circle first fruits. Circle first fruits. In verse 36, as is also written in the law, we bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and of our herd and of our flocks to the house of our Lord. Circle firstborn. And then finally, verse 37, we're going to see it again. Moreover, he will bring to the storerooms of the house of God to the priest the first of our grand meal, of our, you know, our grain, our trees, our new wine, all of so circle the word first there. So the people are commanded not only to tithe, but they practiced what we could call first fruits giving. First fruits giving. In Proverbs 3.9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all of your crops. Remember, he's writing to an agricultural community primarily. Here's what first fruits giving is. It is a commitment in my tithing to give the first and the best to God. Then as a steward, I manage all the rest according to his purposes. That's what first fruits giving is. Specifically, I give the first thing that comes out of my paycheck every month. The top thing is my tithe goes, off to, the, goes to the Lord. And so the question is, why does God ask us of this? Why is this so important to him? He owns everything, we're told. It's not for him. It's really for us. And I would say, as I've thought about it, I think there's three good reasons for this. First fruits giving. First of all, it was a way of demonstrating to God that I truly believe that he is the owner of all, that I truly believe that, that he's the owner of my wealth and I'm simply a steward of it. Because when I take that, that 10%, when I take that off first, here's what I'm saying to the Lord. I'm saying, Lord, this is your money. You're the owner of it. You have gifted it to me. I am so thankful for that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the first part of it back. And it is my pleasure and my joy to do that because of your own generosity. That's what it's saying when I do this. But I want to take it a step further. It not only demonstrates that God is the owner of everything, but it actually builds and reinforces that perspective in me. Um, every time I do that, it's just reinforcing that perspective. Because isn't it so easy to fall into that pattern where you start thinking, what's mine is mine, right? I made it, I earned it, it's mine, it's mine to spend how I want. Um, it's so easy. So first fruits giving helps to counteract um, falling into that lie. Second, first fruits giving is tangible way of demonstrating to him that he truly is the first priority of my life. To demonstrate he's truly the first priority of my life. Um, because here's the reality. If you don't practice first fruits giving, do you know what you're going to practice? You're going to practice last fruits giving. What you're going to give to God is the leftovers. And I live in the real world. I know at the end of the month, how much do you usually have left over? Not a lot, right? Not a lot. Let me illustrate first fruits giving, why it's important and priority this way. Can you imagine inviting a friend over to your house and you say, invite him over because you're having homemade pizza and of course Mountain Dew with it, uh, having Mountain Dew and they sit down at the table and then you say, by the way, before you can eat, first me and the family are going to eat to our fill and then you can have what's ever left over. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine if you went to somebody's house and they said that to you, right? I mean, how would you feel? You would feel like, I'm unimportant, I'm really not very valuable, I'm not worth sacrificing for, I'm kind of at the bottom of the totem pole with this family, right, with this friendship. But you know, some of us, that's what we're communicating to God with the way that we give. 
we're telling him that he's only worth having leftovers and our last fruits. So first fruits giving is a way of saying, God, you truly are first and foremost because I'm taking that thing first off the top. You get the first slices of pizza, the biggest and the best, and then we're going to jump in after the fact. And again, it only demonstrates priority, but it helps to build in me him being my priority. And that's why I said this when we did the generosity moment, that profound statement of Jesus in Matthew 6.20, where he says, store for yourself treasure in heaven. And here's the principle, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to go, right? Wherever your treasure goes, your heart's going to go to that. And so whenever I give, not only tithe, but I do this first fruits of giving, what it's doing is it's directing my heart more and more to him. And then the third thing it does is first fruits giving, it's a way of demonstrating my trust in him and my dependence upon him. Um, I mean, to give God 10% first, first of the month off the top, the very beginning, that's risky, right? Because stuff may come up that month that you, you know, like, how am I going to pay for this? And then you're like, now we're, in, now we're in big trouble. I don't even have enough to take care of myself. And I want you to know this risk is not only true of us, it was especially true for them. 90% of these people lived in extreme poverty. They were peasant people. And almost all of them were involved in agriculture. And when you live in agriculture, your crops are extremely unpredictable. Is that not right? So for God to say, when your harvest comes out, the first part you cut, you give that to me. I mean, can you imagine the risk of that? Because you really don't know, because they didn't have weather apps, right? That tomorrow hail may hit and knock out the rest of it. Or locusts may show up tomorrow and eat the rest of it. Or some invading army may come and conquer and take the rest of it. You didn't know that. So there was a lot of trust involved for these people in this community to do this. Um, And so, yes, first fruits, giving and tithing takes faith, amazing faith. But it's really, it's my way of tangibly saying to you, I trust your promises in Scripture to take care of me. I know that you're going to do that. I know you're going to make my ends meet. But more importantly, first fruits giving also builds my faith. As I experience the reality of God's provision, week in, week out, every month, every year, over time, my trust in Him grows and grows and grows. And I've been there. I've had to live in that way, and I mean, I still do, but there were times we were living on a very tight budget, and we saw God come through all the time. Somebody came up to me after first service and said, I just had the hardest year I've ever had financially, but I never quit my tithing and taking out first, and he said there were times it was really hard, but at the end of the year, when I look back, I'm like, God has taken care of me, and my trust in him has grown. So, all right, application on this one is simple. If you're not yet giving, start giving. It's commanded by God. Simple as that. If you're giving but not yet tithing, I want to challenge you to move in that direction. Make that your goal. And my general recommendation is, is don't just feel like you have to jump immediately into that. Um, take a, just make the commitment. Next year, I'm going to give a percent more than I did this year, and I'm going to do another percent until I get to that. And I think here's what you're going to find as you actually do that and the joy of giving starts enveloping your soul, that you're going to start taking bigger leaps than just a 1%. Um, I've been there and I've done that. In fact, you can commit today to be like starting 2024. I'm going to up my giving amount because I want to get to that. If you're giving this morning, but you give at the back end of your paycheck instead of the front end, my challenge to you is to start practicing first fruits giving. And here's, to me, the best reason to do it. Because when God gave to me and gave to us, he gave his first, not his first, he gave his only and he gave his best. 
So is he not worthy of my first and my best? And then one final application. Some of you have been practicing first fruits giving and tithing. But I just heard from somebody very recently who said when they got to the 10%, they stopped, though over time their income kept increasing because they thought in their mind that the tithe was, um, was, the, was the... I want to get this right because I'm not going to say it right. In their mind, um, the tithe was the ceiling and not the floor. And then they realized it's actually the floor. The goal of the Christian life and giving isn't getting the 10% like, yeehaw, I made it. That's not the goal. The goal is to grow in generosity and have a generous heart. That's the goal. The goal is, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, is to excel in this gift of giving, to get better and better at it. And just to say, I just want to keep growing in my generosity. And as you do that, you find that the truth of Jesus in Acts 20, 35 is true, that it is actually more blessed to give. And the more you do that, and when you even cross that threshold and push past it, you're like, wow, I, I am feeling this, the blessing of doing that. So um, ever-increasing levels of generosity to me is the goal of the Christian life. Um, it's the goal pattern I have for ourselves. And so my challenge to all of us in this is to, over time, increase your standard of giving, not your standard of living. I'm not saying live in poverty. I'm not saying don't have stuff to enjoy and celebrate because that's a practice of the spiritual life. But that you, you hit a point, especially as you age, you're like, we've got enough. We're going to live it enough. Yeah, inflation adjustment, but we're just going to give more and more and more. So that's my challenge, that to challenge to live more sacrificially so we can give more extravagantly because that's what God did for us. Okay, we've added three new essentials to a healthy, restoring body, right? Spiritual oneness in marriage, faithfulness in Sabbath keeping, and generosity in giving, specifically in tithing and first fruits giving. And so my big question this morning right now is, of those three, which did you most need to hear this morning? Of those three, which did you most need to hear this morning? Maybe have a quick conversation with God about that. And we do this every week. I'm curious, and again, there's space in the back pages to do this. What's the most important thing you learn from this chapter? What, if you, in the head category, what was the most important thing you learned today? Write that down, and a phrase, a word. And I've already kind of asked it, but what was God speaking to you, to your heart today? Or was he tapping you on the shoulder? And then what are you going to do about it? Because we have to be obedient. We have to put our hands to the things God's speaking to us. So, Would you stand with me? Would you stand? So 12th, we've done 8, 9, and 10 of Nehemiah. And it's, it's all essential practices of a healthy community, of a strong base camp here that helps to empower us as we live outside of these four walls and the places we live, work, study, and play, living as restores, right? And so far, here's what we've learned. And so 12th, may we be a community that the word of God is central to who we are. May we be a community that knows how to celebrate, 
So go all out on Thursday. Have a great time. Eat a lot. Watch football all day. Play games. Do a puzzle. It's going to be 70 degrees. Get outside, okay? But celebrate. May we be a people who are centered in prayer, a people who remember, and that's what this week is about, right? So may we all think about this year and remember and give thanks to God. And may we be a community of people where there is oneness, spiritual oneness in marriage, that we're committed to that, that we're committed to being faithful in Sabbath-keeping, and that we are also committed to being generous in our giving because that's the kind of community God calls us to be. So can we be that kind of people, 12? Can we step into the challenge? Can we do that? Yes? Can I hear an amen about that? Yeah, this isn't Garen. I'm not just sitting here planning topics. This all comes out of the Word of God. So, Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for Nehemiah. I thank you so much still for the practicality of this book and how it speaks to us, not just as individuals, but the kind of believing community 12 needs to be. So, Lord, help us to live into these things, especially the three today. May we be people who have that oneness, spiritual oneness in our marriage. Lord, may we be people who are consistent at keeping that Sabbath and entering into the rest and the delight that you call us to. And Lord, may we be people who are generous in our giving. Only you can do that through your spirit. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So 12th, you're sent.